What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Well, welcome this weekend. Everybody doing all right? Okay, good, good. What are you laughing at? Oh, I tell you, hey, listen, I'm trying to, listen, this is a new series, Rebuild. I'm trying to rebuild my image, okay? <laughs> basically, listen, if you don't know what this is, basically this is a fashion mullet. It's, it's business on the top and casual on the bottom, all right? So I want to welcome those of you who are much nicer and who are joining us from a campus uh, or maybe in the warehouse or the chapel or... If you're uh, joining us online, we're glad that you guys are along too. It's going to be a great day, great weekend. We're starting a new series, Rebuild. Uh, as I kind of preface uh, what we're going to talk about, and this is going to be a, a basic overview today. We'll look at chapter one. Uh, but, but let me ask you a question first. Have you ever been having like um, just an average ordinary day, okay, as Joe Walsh would call it? <laughs> having an average, ordinary day, and it's interrupted by a phone call or by a text or uh, by an email that literally kind of changes everything, at least for that day, maybe for a few months, and perhaps the course of, of a lifetime. Anybody ever had one of those happen? I've had several. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's a good thing. Um, it could be an invitation to a new challenge. I remember... Several years ago, I uh, was living in Freeport, Illinois, where the Crossroads campus is. And I want to welcome you guys specifically uh, with us today. But um, living there, pastor in church, uh, very happy with what we were doing, great community, and began to feel the, the kind of the tug of God that there was a new season coming. And I got a phone call from Fred Richard, who is a pastor at Northwood Assembly here in Charleston, inviting me to be a part of. Um, the vision and the dream that they had for church planting. And it was out of the blue, honestly, totally out of the blue. And it certainly altered the future of my family. It altered the future of two churches, and, and it's been a healthy thing for everybody involved. It can be a good thing. It can be an inconvenient thing. Have you ever had somebody, you know, you're doing something, you got a day planned or whatever, or maybe a life planned, and boom, here comes something from the kids that's going to inconvenient you, inconvenience you or maybe from a friend or relative level or whatever, and uh, you go, wow, where, where do we go with that? What do we do? Uh, I don't have time for this. This wasn't in the plan. Or it can be a devastating call. Um, I, I'll never forget the call that I received from my brother uh, when he told me that my mother had gone to be with the Lord. And while it was a good thing that she went to be with the Lord and she struggled with cancer, she was 54 years old. And, uh, you know, I knew all of that theologically, uh, but still, boy, in my heart, some of you experienced that. It was a, a day that I still think about. In fact, tomorrow is her birthday, 
and I'll spend some time, I've got it on my calendar, and I'll spend some time thinking about that and remembering, you know, how wonderful she was in my life. But uh, th- those types of things, they, they happen. Depending on the circumstances, these interruptions can be life-altering. They can call for a response, and sometimes there's a need to rebuild something that has been torn down as a result of what you've heard, or maybe it already had begun to be torn down. Maybe you'd ignored it, maybe you didn't know about it, but now you've got to do something. You know, maybe it's trust that's been torn down, it needs to be rebuilt, or maybe it's a relationship that needs to be rebuilt, or maybe it's a ministry or a career or a business. Well, you know, that happened uh, one day to a guy named Nehemiah about 2,500 years ago. He was kind of minding his own business, having an average ordinary day. He was at work, and his brother shows up. His brother uh, uh, obviously didn't live around him. He lived a long ways away, or else he had traveled a long ways away. It was a surprise to him. He showed up, and he gives him some disturbing news that changes the course of his life. Now, it seemed inconvenient at the time. It was very disturbing. It caused him to go into some grief and mourning, which we'll talk about. Uh, but it, it, the, the life-altering part about it is that it ultimately sends him and sets him on his road to his destiny. In fact, the thing that he will be remembered for happens post-phone call, post-email, post-text. Now, his response wasn't, oh, this is awesome. This is exactly what I was hoping for. Because oftentimes when you have one of those interruptions, um, that's certainly not the thing that you respond with. And it wasn't the thing that he responded with. In fact, it was much the opposite. I want to read it to you. It's in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to just study, basically, we're going to go verse by verse and study the whole chapter um, uh, this weekend. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Or if you've got an outline sheet, or you can follow along on the screen. And uh, I'll read. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of somebody, uh, Hakaliah, okay? (laughs) Who named that boy, you know what I mean? (laughs) Be careful what you name your kids. In in late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in other words, in October, November kind of deal, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, King King Artaxerxes' is uh, the king of the Babylonian Empire, which at that point is ruling pretty much of the known world. He says, I was at the fortress of Susa, which is in uh, current day Iran. And, um, and he, he said, uh, Han and I, one of my brothers came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. Judah is referring to Jerusalem. Okay, it's about a thousand miles away said, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity. So what we know is that the Babylonians, um, about 400 years before, had taken, um, and actually it wasn't 400 years before, it, it, it was about 140 years before, had taken Israel captive and had uh, um, brought, actually took hostage the whole nation and brought them to um, the uh, kingdom of Babylonia, which would have been Iraq and Iran uh, today. And so he says, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. How things were going in Jerusalem. 
They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace, and the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, he says, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days, most uh, theologians think it it was probably uh, two or three months, he went into mourning and he fasted and he prayed to the God of heaven. Let me give you just a real quick background on how they got to here, okay? Uh, Approximately 1441 B.C., you know, 1400 years before Jesus uh, was born, Moses leads the people of God uh, out of Israel to Egypt. In our last series, we talked about specifically kind of the tail end of Moses' leadership. Uh, He led them out of Egypt, and they went into the promised land, and and uh, our last series was built on Deuteronomy 6 as he's instructing them on how to raise their kids in the new kind of era that they're going to be a part of. But real back to the beginning, about 1400 B.C., they leave Egypt, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he begins to get the, um, the, the laws, all right? But along with the laws, he gets specific architectural plans to build what's called the tabernacle, the people of Israel are going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert, before they get to the promised land. And God says, I want you to build a tabernacle so that you can worship me. It'll be the place where I dwell. It'll be the centerpiece of worship for Israel. Now, what was the tabernacle? Well, fortunately, Sikos had a photographer there, and so we took a picture, and this is kind of what it looked like. The tabernacle was basically a tent, okay? It was a portable church. It's like a campus where you move in and you move out. Some of you are real familiar with that. Well, they would move in and move out. Every time God would move them, they would move the tabernacle. It would kind of lead them on the journey, and then they'd, they'd set up the tabernacle, a tent, a place of, of worship. Now, what was in the tabernacle? In the, in the tent area was the Ark of the Covenant. We fortunately had a picture of that, too. And in the Ark of the Covenant uh, contained, anybody know what the Ark of the Covenant contained? The tablets of the law, okay? The tablets of the law were in the Ark of the Covenant. Where is that now? We don't know. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, it disappeared. It disappeared, okay? So that's how they worship. Now, when, um, when Israel entered the Promised Land, they ultimately conquer all of the cities, and it culminates with the reign of King David, who expanded the kingdom, probably the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And... Um, David establishes Jerusalem as the city of God. Jerusalem is going to be the place from where God does his work. It's a city on a hill. It's a city that is the light to the world. Okay, Very important city, both then, now, and in the future when the Messiah returns. He will return to Jerusalem. Uh, David uh, builds walls around the city. We've got some pictures of what those walls may very well have looked like. Uh, This is a mock-up of of actually Jerusalem. And why did they have walls around the city? Because in those days they didn't have, you know, know, airplanes protecting or ships protecting or whatever. This was the defense system for a city. City, the first thing they do is build walls. Because if a, a foreign army was to come, if a city didn't have walls, they were just wide open to attack. I mean, just immediately they would come in. If a foreign army came and they had walls, uh, even if they were um, a larger army, they could ho- the walls could hold off an army for 
you know, 45 days to, to two months until reserves could come in. So the, the walls were the protection of the city. A city without walls was pretty much toast. Now, uh, the walls always had at least one gate, and the gate is the way that you go in and out. You can't scale the walls normally. And so if you're going to come into a city, you come in or you go out through the gates of the city. Now, David, ultimately, after he builds a wall, he builds himself a palace. We have a picture of that. And uh, it was a magnificent palace. And at some point, David starts feeling guilty that he has this beautiful palace to come home to, and God lives in basically a tent. And so he says to God, God, I want to build you a place to dwell. I want to build a temple, something more magnificent than has ever been built in the world before. God says to David, you know, that's a great idea, but you're not the right guy to do it. I'd like for your son, Solomon, to build the temple. And so David gets, uses his influence to get all the materials together and all of that, and then he dies, and his son Solomon builds what's called Solomon's Temple. And Solomon's Temple becomes the focal place of worship uh, for uh, the people of God. Now, almost 400 years later, that's where I got the 400 years, Almost 400 years later, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jewish people are deported to Babylon. City is wiped out, walls torn down, temple uh, destroyed everything. And so, and so they leave. Now, about 50 years, two generations, after they're in captivity in Babylon, the king allows a few Israelites to go back to the city of Jerusalem. The first thing they do is they build a temple. They build a temple. They rebuild the temple there so that they have a place of worship. A few years later, Ezra comes and he dedicates the temple and he leads a second group of Israelites, Jewish people, back to live in Jerusalem. So you got two groups coming and it's the second group that Nehemiah is notified uh, uh, about. The problem is this, they've got a place of worship but their city has no walls. And so they are open to attack. They're open to persecution. They are having a really bad time. They're demoralized. They're just frustrated. And that's the situation that, um, that, that's there when Nehemiah's brother comes to him. And uh, he makes a thousand-mile tra- trek, Nehemiah's brother does, to tell him about the problem. Now, why Nehemiah? Is Nehemiah a construction guy? No. Is he a contractor? No. Is he an architect? No. Does he know anything about building walls? No. Has he ever built a wall before? No. In fact, as we'll find out next week, he, he, and, and at the end of this chapter, he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. In other words, he was a wine taster. That was, his, that was his job. That was his background. And God goes, hey, I'm going to use a wine taster to do something significant in the world. Now, isn't it often the case that God chooses the least likely people when he wants to do something great? God chose you. God chose me. And oftentimes when I look at the, at the fact that God chose me, I go, God, what were you thinking? Did you ever think that? Not about me, but about you. Okay. <laughs> what are you thinking? But God always knows. In fact, what's interesting is God has set this whole thing up, even in bondage and captivity, He's got just the right person at just the right time to do a miracle and to deliver his people. 
And that ought to be significant to you and in your family. There may be some walls that are torn down. There may be, may be some situations in your life that you wonder, God, where are you? You know, God is at work on a solution before you even know there's a problem. And that was the case here in Nehemiah's uh, time. Now, what was Nehemiah's reaction to the news? It wasn't, yippee, this is great, amazing, God, I'll do something. No, he begins to weep, and he begins to mourn, and he fasts, and he prays. These are probably some of his friends that had gone, and they're having a bad time. And then he begins to dream. He begins to dream about a solution. Oftentimes, the, our greatest source of inspiration is in the midst of our greatest despair. Just listen to country music. And so for the next... So the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about how God inspires dreamers to rebuild what is broken in life. And I'd love for you to be a part of, of all of it. Let's talk about those walls, okay, the walls that are down. The walls are symbolic of several things. I believe that the walls are symbolic of our cities today. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 to his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. He's talking to the church, the future church. He's talking to Seacoast. He's talking to, to all who would come to know him and follow him. And he's saying, you're to be a light. You're to be like Jerusalem is. You're to be a city that is a light unto all of the world. Jesus says that in every city, there needs to be a city. There needs to be subsets of cities, churches that, that are breathing life, that when there's frustration economically, that there's hope in the church, that then when, when there's frustration relationally, they can find hope in the church, that there is to be direction and light in every community, every city, there's to be that. That's why our mission at Seacoast is to see a life-giving church in every community in the world. I'm not going to give up until I see that. That's why we plant campuses. That's why we don't just say, well, here at Mount Pleasant, we're full up, us four and no more, you know, and who cares, the rest of the world can go to hell. We don't say that. We don't say that. What we say is we say, you know what, there needs to be a light in every community. There needs to be a life-giving expression of the love of Jesus in every community. And so we plant campuses. We also plant churches. As many of you know, I'm now the president of the Ark, and we've planted over 300 churches in America in the last 10 years. And we're going to up it to 2,000 in the next eight years. And it's not just going to be in America. It's going to be all over the world because we believe that the church is the light of the world. That the church is to be the city, within the city, where there's hope and where there's a refuge. And every community deserves that. Would you agree with me? Every community deserves that. Feels like a spiritual or a political speech there. It's awesome. Why do we need that? Because we live in cities that are spiritually bankrupt. We live in cities that their walls are broken down. They're destroyed and they're confused. We live in cities here in America where we're more concerned about the environment than we are concerned about human life. That's just jacked up. See, the environment is important, but when we're more concerned with saving trees than we are saving babies, something is jacked up with that. See, it's hip and cool if I get up here and I talk about, you know, our concern for the environment, and I am. I'm, I'm a borderline tree hugger. I just want to admit that. 
But if I get up and I talk about, hey, there's a problem, that, that abortion is a problem, that every aborted baby uh, has, has a purpose, every baby in the womb has a purpose from God, and abortion is wrong. When I do that, when I do that, then I'm labeled as narrow, you know, and not with the times and whatever. And let me just say this to you real quick. If, if you have, if you've been involved, maybe had an abortion at some point, point, I am not condemning you. Can I tell you what? Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. If you have repented of what you've done, you are as clean and as fresh and as free and God has forgiven you and God has a purpose for the life that you took and I believe that you'll see them someday in heaven. I believe that with all of my heart. But if you stand and you wave an angry fist at me and you say it's a woman's right to choose, I want to say something to you. I think you're wrong. And let me tell you why. Because I, I think that our cities are jacked up. I think that we need to look at life not from just my own worldview or some worldview. We need to look at life and everything that we do through a biblical worldview. It doesn't matter what I think. What does God think? What does God say? Let me talk to you about the election for just a minute. I would never tell you how to vote. I know, well, I will tell you how to vote. I'll never tell you who to vote for. I, I won't do that. I never have, uh, never will. Some of you, what's interesting about this church is some of you are irritated at me because you think I'm a Democrat. And others of you are irritated at me because you think I'm a Republican. I love that. I love that. And let me tell you what I am. And let me tell you how I vote. I would never vote a liberal worldview because the liberals are jacked up on some stuff. I would never vote a conservative worldview because the conservatives are jacked up for, on some stuff. And I believe that with all of my heart. But I would vote a Christian worldview. And if we would all vote a Christian worldview, then the two parties would figure that out and they'd come more toward where it needs to be. That's just what I think. And so I want to challenge you as you vote. I want to challenge you as you think about how you feel on issues to look at the platforms of the party and not vote liberal or conservative or whatever it happens to be. You vote a biblical worldview. Figure out what is it that God is saying? What does God believe? And can I say one more thing just real quick before I move on from this? If, if what I'm saying right now makes you angry, let me, let me, let me give you two things to consider. Let, let me defend myself. If I believe that abortion is the taking of a human life and I don't say anything about it, what does that say about me? What does that say about me? That, that means I'm a people pleaser and I care only about the politics of growing a big church, okay? That's, that's not who I am. Secondly, if it angers you, do something with that. Do something with that. Use it to, to challenge you to go and examine your own beliefs. I want to challenge you to go and, and look and say, okay, what does God say about these issues? It's not about me, it's about him. What does he say? And, uh, and just come to, a, you know, come to a conclusion on your own, but do it intellectually and intelligently. Does that make sense? I believe that our cities, that our walls are torn down. I believe that our churches, the walls are down. How many of you today, you don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you drove past a church where the walls were torn down today, see? Every year in America, between 3,500 and 4,500 churches are closed. They die, they close, they turn into 
a restaurant or a residential a place where people live, or an apartment complex, or a bar, or whatever. They die. They die. Not only that, 80% of the churches in America are plateaued or declining. 80%. Eight out of ten churches in America are declining or plateaued. Um, there are a lot of churches in America today that don't preach the gospel anymore because it's not, it's not culturally popular to do that. So what do we do? I'm not saying that Seacoast is the only light. We become a light. We are a light. I want to be a light. And we're not the only one. What's exciting about being in Mount Pleasant is we're not even the only or the brightest light in Mount Pleasant. There are some incredible, incredible churches in our community that are, uh, that are the light of Jesus and doing the work of Jesus. We're not the only ones. And we're sure not perfect, okay? In fact, we're a lot less perfect since you've started coming than we were before. <laughs> I just want to tell you that. I just want to tell you that, <laughs> okay? I know we're not perfect. We're not even close, not even close. But you know what? I also, I also know that we have things that need rebuilt. We really do. Right now, we have campuses that are rebuilding. Our Irmo campus has recently transitioned to new leadership because we wanted Jeff and Melanie to work in another area, and so you're rebuilding around a new leader. Same thing's happening in Asheville. You're rebuilding around a new leader. Crossroads Church, who we've welcomed into our living room as a part of who we are, you're rebuilding. Many of us don't even know what, when I say Crossroads, what's up with that? The, the pastor, who we love, all of us love, uh, at Crossroads made some, some poor choices and some bad choices and w had to be uh, um, uh, ushered out as pastor. And uh, I, I want to tell you guys at Crossroads who are watching right now, uh, we love Keith and Julie. And I believe that God has a plan for them. We love you guys. And uh, we will stay with you. And our arms will be around you as long as it takes to rebuild what God wants to rebuild in your community. See, the, the walls are broken down in many churches. Uh, the walls of our lives are broken down. I believe that the walls of Jerusalem are symbolic of our lives. Uh, in the, the word that came to Nehemiah, his brother told him, things are not going well for the people. They're in great trouble and distress. There are some of us who are listening or watching today that you would say, things are not going well for me. I relate to that. You look at your life today and there are places where the walls have been broken down with no ability left to resist attack. Maybe it's sexual walls that have been broken down. Maybe you're, you're doing things. You're crossing lines that you know are wrong and you never thought that you would go there, but you can't seem to stop. It might be sleeping with somebody that you're not married to. It might be an issue with porn, you know, and it's disgusting to you. There's this, there's this, 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 uh, this sense of, of completeness, but then there's this sense of disgust, and you wish you could do something different, but you feel trapped. It might be ad, attitudinal walls that are broken. Is that even a word, attitudinal? I think it is. My, my uh, word, word thing said it was. <laughs> attitudinal walls have been broken. Maybe you have a bitter spirit, and maybe you've just begun to see it. People around you have kind of been hinting about it, and you're beginning to see it. There's a critical attitude in you that defaults to complaining. It's so habitual that you feel like you can't stop, and deep inside, that's not who you want to be, but that's who you are. 
you started slowly at some point, you began to drift it and realized that you were starting a habit, now you can't stop. You may be in a job right now that you don't like, or you may be living in a place that you thought, you know, five years ago or ten years ago, you say, I never thought that I'd be living here. Things just aren't working. The walls of your city are broken. Maybe the gates are burned too. It said when they came to Nehemiah, they said the walls are broken and the gates are burned. What's up with that? Well, the gates are the place that, that information comes and goes. People come and go. And gates may be broken. I, I have friends who were sexually abused as children and young adults. And, and there's a shame and there's a scarring that oftentimes goes with that. And that may be you. And it, it, for some of you, it may have kept you as somewhat of a recluse. Your gates are burned. You keep everybody at a distance. There's a level of communication that you won't go to. Nobody has access to you. It may be because of a family that broke up when you were younger. You know, some kids, they navigate divorce and they do okay, and others don't. And you may be one of those that didn't. And it feels like that your walls are broken down and your gates, the lines of communication, you can't communicate things that you want to communicate. It may be an unexplained death of a loved one or some bitter experience where you feel or felt betrayed and sabotaged and you want to run and you want to hide. There are parts of your life that you just can't talk about and you don't want anybody to know. On the outside... You look great. You may be even wearing a fashion mullet. If you're not, you will in the future because you just like the way it looks. <laughs> you look like a success. But on the inside, the walls are in ruin. How do you handle it? How do you rebuild cities? How do you rebuild churches? How do you rebuild lives? Well, we're not going to cover it all today by any means. Nehemiah takes seven chapters to talk about specific steps, how you can rebuild and we're going to study those in depth over the next 10 weeks. But today, I just want to just, and at the end, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time with him. But I want to look at his prayer, Nehemiah's prayer. He's, he begins by weeping and mourning, and then he begins to pray. And in that prayer, he gives four very clear things that you can do to start, begin the process of rebuilding walls that are broken. So when the walls are destroyed, first of all, you refocus. You refocus. You take a breath. And you refocus on getting an accurate picture of who God is. See, often when things aren't going right, we get a distorted picture of God, don't we? Heard about a guy that was going to go to the mountains for some vacation. He may have been going to Colorado, I don't know. But he, uh, he starts out in his car, he packs up all his stuff he's excited about. He starts in his car and he starts driving it. And it begins to rain and the rain gets harder and harder and Finally, about a mile from where he's going to go, his car runs out of gas. And so he packs everything he can in a little knapsack. And he decides, I'm going to hike because night is falling. And he gets to within 200 yards of the cabin, and there's a giant lightning strike, and it just burns the cabin to the ground. Crawls up under a tree. And he looks at God, and he says, God, why me? And then he hears a thundering voice from heaven that says, because some people just tick me off. Not true. <laughs> but sometimes you feel like that, don't you? What have I done to tick God off? You know, there's this, 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 and this. 
What have I done? You know what? It's hard to approach a God that you think's mad at you. It's hard to talk to a God like that. Maybe your image of God has been distorted by people who misrepresented God. It may have been well-meaning parents who had to do something in order to get you under control, and so they made God the guilt police, you know. And you don't want to approach a God like that. It may have been a pastor at some point who was abusive and abused his power, and, and you say, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. It might have been circumstances that God should have fixed. You feel like God didn't come through for you or one of your loved ones. How can I trust a God who's supposed to be in control when he allows that? Oftentimes when I talk to people who are far from God and they say, I just can't believe in God. And sometimes I'll say, tell me the God you can't believe in. I may not be able to believe in him either. Because you need a fresh perspective of who God is. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to have had a distorted view of God because the walls had been broken down for 140 years. It didn't happen yesterday. Jewish people had been in captivity for all that time. They're being kicked around by the Babylonians. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to say when his brother came in, well, maybe God's just ticked off. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he can't do anything about it. It's easier to sit here and live with broken walls. But instead, he chose to refocus on the record of who God is. Look at the scripture, first part of his prayer. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. Notice what he says about God. He says, God is the God who keeps his covenant of love. He doesn't say, God is this angry, you know, distant thing. He says, God's the God who loves us, and he made a covenant to love us, and he keeps his covenant. When there are walls that are broken down, yours or someone you love, you start by pouring your heart out to God, but you focus on the character of God. I love Micah 7, 18. It says, where is another God like you? who pardons pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. I love Zephaniah 3.17. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. God loves you. If he had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a contact list in his iPhone, you'd be in the favorites. If he was able to score a couple of tickets to the Carolina-Clemson game, he'd give them to you, okay? God's crazy about you. He's so crazy about you that he sent his son to die for you so that you could have a relationship with him. When your walls are broken down, when you begin to pray, first refocus on who God is. Second thing you do is repent. Repent. Own up to your own mistakes. Nehemiah does it. Look at uh, the next part of the scripture. He says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Who's we? Circle we. Will you do that? Who's we? We is the country. He's confessing for the sins of his fathers, the country. He says, we've sinned against you, God, and maybe it's time that some of us spend some time confessing for the sins of the we, of the we. He says, we've done it. Then he goes on. And he says, it's easy, though, to confess for somebody else's we. Would you agree with that? And he goes on, and he says, yes, even my own family. Now it's getting more personal. He's saying, my family has failed you, God. 
Then he goes on and he says, and I have sinned against you. He's covering every base. He's saying, God, I want to be sure that I'm clear with you. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. Would have been easy to say for Nehemiah, for him to say, you know, God, this wasn't my fault. I wasn't even alive when people disobeyed you. That was, you know, decades, uh, centuries ago. 140 years the walls were turned down. It wasn't my problem, God. You know, I would have done a lot better. I'm paying for somebody else's sin. How do you know sometimes you pay for other people's sins? You know, when you're in trouble, usually it's one of three things. It's something that's a force that's way beyond your control. Maybe it's an economy that went south. Maybe it's a hurricane that tore up your area. You know, maybe it's all kinds of things like that. You had nothing to do with it, but you're paying for it. Or it could have been somebody else made a bad decision. A poor choice. Your husband made a poor choice and now you're paying for it. Your wife, your mother, your father, your friend, your business partner made a poor choice and now you're paying for it. Sometimes, I think most of the time, it's our own mistake. It's our own mistake. We, we, we did something. But, but Nehemiah puts himself in the picture. He says, you know what? It was a bunch of other people. It may have been natural things. It may have been all kinds of stuff. But I own my part. It's hard to do, isn't it? He doesn't blame he doesn't excuse. It's a simple, I'm wrong. Here's the principle. Self-justification almost always cancels out recovery. Let me take the almost out of there. Self-justification always cancels out recovery. It's a great scripture. I wish it was on your outline sheet. Uh, I got it after I put the outline sheet in. It's Proverbs 28, 13. And it says this. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. If you conceal your sins, you're not going to prosper. If you blame, if you excuse, if you justify, you're not going to pro uh, um, prosper because God can't forgive excuses. God only forgives confession of sin. And you say, well, I, I didn't sin very much. Well, a little bit. It was all her fault. You know, very seldom is it all her fault. Usually it's maybe 5% my fault, 95% her fault. Well, why don't you confess to 10%, double your stake in the deal, and at least say, this is part of my problem, okay? Just declare it. Because if you try to excuse yourself for what's wrong in your life, you block recovery. So if you're going to rebuild, uh, broken down walls, refocus, repent. Third part of his prayer, you remember. You find hope in God's promises. Look at Nehemiah 1.8. Please remember what you told your servant, Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then uh, even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring back you back to the place that I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying in Deuteronomy, you made a covenant with Moses. And you can find it in Deuteronomy 28. And in that covenant, you said, if your people will obey you, that these will be the blessings that come from it. And if your people disobey you, these are the curses. But even if they disobey you, if they will repent, you will gather them from the ends of the earth. And so Nehemiah says, there's hope in that. God I want to remind you of that. And sometimes it's good to remind God of things. Is it because God has forgotten? I don't think so. 
but it puts our prayers in the context of his will. We say, God, this is what you said. And because you said that, I'm going to put my prayer in that context. And the New Testament says that if you pray according to his will, you, you can be assured that you receive what you've prayed. And so you, you, you go to a promise and you remind God of the promise. He's a God of forgiveness, of restoration, of power. He can change things. Not a big deal to him. So maybe this is a prayer that you need to, to give to God today. God, remember that you said if I would seek you first, that you would give me everything that I need. That's Matthew 6, Well, God, I need some things right now. And I'm doing my best to seek you first in my life. Remind God of that. Or maybe it's, God, remember when you said that you love giving good gifts to your kids? I'm one of your kids and I need a gift right now. Or God, remember when you said that if I would train up my kids in the way they should go, that when they're old they won't depart from it? God, I remember that. I need help. Or God, remember when you said that you would never leave me or forsake me? It feels a little lonely right now. I just need a reassurance of your presence. Here's a promise, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, God. They are, the plans are for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. So when the walls are, are down, refocus, repent. Remember, let me give you one more. Resolve. Submit your plan of action to God. See, when, when Nehemiah refocused on who God was, when he repented of his sin, his father's sin, and the sins of his nation, and then he remembered um, and reminded God of, of his promise, it gave him the resolve to do something. Scripture says this. Here's, here's his prayer. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me, to be kind to me. So Nehemiah was going to go to the king. We'll talk about that next week. That was a risky place. Wasn't going to be easy. He believes God will help him. We won't even get into it. But here's the point. Here's the point. Nehemiah had a place to start. How do you know sometimes just finding a place to start is the hardest thing? Uh, this weekend, we chose to clean our garage from Debbie and I's sins, but mostly from the sins of our children down through the generations. Took a whole dumpster to clean it out. When I, when I, I feel great today because you could come in my garage and you can actually see. But when we started, I walked down there with Debbie on Saturday morning and I looked at this rubble. I said, where do we start? And I wandered around for about 15 minutes going, maybe we should start here. Well, no, let's start here. I don't know where to start. Once we decided on where to start, we made progress. Sometimes knowing where to start is the hardest thing. Nehemiah had a place to start. Did he have a full plan? No, he didn't. As you're going to find out, the plan came later. But he knew the first thing that he needed to do was go and talk to the king. No matter what's in ruin in your life, there's always a place to start. Maybe for some of us today, the starting point is to apologize to somebody. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit will say to you as a result of this whole message is just to go apologize. Maybe that's your starting point. Maybe you need to seek some advice. Maybe it's in your marriage. And you need to seek some advice. You need to ask somebody, how do you handle this? You know, one of the greatest things you could do is to go to the Love and Respect Conference, honestly, um, that's coming up. That's uh, those, the people that are going to be speaking at that are some of the more foremost marriage people on the planet. They're coming right here to Charleston. And so that'd be a place to start. 
Or maybe it's economic advice. You need advice on, on money. Maybe you need to ask somebody. Or maybe it's for your, finance, your health, you know, could be any of a number of things. Maybe you need to join a group that will support you, a small group of men or women or maybe a divorce care or grief share or whatever it happens to be, uh, uh, celebrate recovery. You just need to find a, a group. But whatever you pray, pray that God will give you the grace, strength, and determination to take the first step. See, recovery begins with the first step. Start here. Examine the walls and the gates of your life and then do business with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for this story that's so vivid from 2,500 years ago that's so applicable to today. And now, God, I ask that in the next few moments that you would just um, focus us, help us to focus, and help us just to, uh, to do, do the next thing, whatever that is. We ask it in your name. Amen.